This week on Priority One, we trek out a new official Star Trek Command School for real. Star Trek releases a timeline of events in canon a la Marvel phases, and production of Star Trek IV in the Kelvin timeline seems to be back in motion. For real this time. And in Star Trek Gaming, we take a closer look at the newest ships in Star Trek Online. Dr. Robert Hurt beams in with a recap of his experience with the Discovery Virtual Reality missions, and we slingshot around the sun to trek out a retro Star Trek game. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash priority one. Command codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 439 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, your weekly report of all the major news happening in the Star Trek multiverse. Recorded live on Tuesday, November 19th, and available for download or streaming on Friday, November 22nd at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kat. And I'm Anthony. And before we jump into the news, we want to invite you to join in on the weekly conversations. Whether via social media platforms like facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast, on Twitter or Instagram at Priority One Pod, or by email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Maintaining these features would not be possible without the support of our patrons, listeners like you, who support the ongoing production of this show by offering a financial contribution each month. Visit us at patreon.com forward slash priority one pod and check out how you can become an admiral in the Priority One Podcast listener fleet. Now, Captains, we understand that giving up your hard-earned money to a podcast is a big ask, and we understand that. So, here are some other ways that you can support Priority One. One of the biggest ways is to share this show. Make sure that every time we post our episodes on Fridays to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, you name it, that you hit that share button. Let everyone know that you're listening to Priority One Podcast and that they can get their weekly roundup of news right here. We're also looking for some help. We have a new video project we'd like to begin work on and we could use a hand with editing. Nothing fancy, we aren't producing a movie or anything. So if you have experience with some video editing and would like to join the team, reach out to us. Our email is incoming at priorityonepodcast.com. Now let's check out all the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. I don't know. Then let's trek it out. It's hard to deny at this point that Star Trek programming has entered a new renaissance. With so many new shows currently in production, most every Trek fan can find something to be excited about. But if you're an undergraduate or graduate student, this week's news from CBS may be the most exciting yet. 
CBS Television Studios and the Television Academy Foundation have announced the Star Trek Command Training Program. The new program will provide internship placements on a Star Trek series for two lucky students per semester starting in 2020. If you've ever dreamed of sitting in the writer's room, building a bridge, or maybe being a part of the Lower Decks animation team, then this could be your ticket into the crew. Speaking about the program, Star Trek executive producer Alex Kurtzman said, quote, The Star Trek universe is an ideal place to celebrate new voices and perspectives. We want to provide the framework to begin entertainment careers in a meaningful way and can't wait to get started. End quote. The application process will be handled by the Academy Foundation, while CBS Television will handle mentorship, assignments, and curriculum. Interested students should visit televisionacademy.com forward slash internships to apply. Applications are open through January 21st, 2020 for eligible college students 18 and over. Which brings us to our first community question this week. If you could join the production crew of any Star Trek series, what would be your dream job? So do you think they'd take an old retired filmmaker for an intern? I do have experience. No, sir, you have to be in school in an undergraduate or graduate program. But if you could, what would be your series? Oh, if I had to be on a series, I think I I would want to be on whatever Jonathan Frakes is working on. Which is all the things. He's probably going to direct Picard season two at some point. So I would have to go with Picard season two because I would love to work with Jonathan Frakes. He actually is one of the inspirations that got me into filmmaking to begin with. So, Kat, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't take you as someone who would be the writer intern or the set builder intern or the costumer intern. I I would probably put you somewhere in legal. Which Star Trek? <laughs> what? No, no, no. <laughs> what? I mean... I'd be like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and then I have to get insurance for it. Which show would you like to work on if you could? Oh, man. Uh, season one of Discovery. <laughs> Redo it? Is that what you mean? Redo it? Nope. That's the one where you do the most Got work, it. right? Right. <laughs> um, probably Next Generation, if, if not that first season of Discovery, yes. By the way, I didn't mean to say that you wouldn't be good at writing or directing or <laughs> that was, that's not what I meant in any way shape or form uh, no I have a I have a preferred uh, way of seeing things <laughs> usually through like oh my god how are we gonna um, cover that or I need an addendum <laughs> sign this release uh, yeah I don't know writing and directing probably not yeah I like to be behind the scenes <laughs> telling people what to do <laughs> So maybe directing. So you'd be then. a good director, is what you're saying. Right. <laughs> well, captains, again, we want to know your thoughts. Which Star Trek series would be your dream job? Let us know in the comment section for this episode at PriorityOnePodcast.com or on our social media channels when we post this community question. Veteran Star Trek actor Cole Meany was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award this past week at the annual Irish Post Awards. 
The awards honor the accomplishments of Irish individuals in fields like business, entertainment, and sports. We, of course, are familiar with Meany from his 225 Star Trek appearances. His career as Starfleet engineer Miles O'Brien is second only to Michael Dorn's Worf for Star Trek appearances. The versatile actor has also appeared in an impressive body of other TV and film projects, with IMDb listing 127 acting credits to his name. When interviewed after the awards, Mr. Meany himself mused, quote, I enjoyed Star Trek. I did it for seven years. Seven years in a spacesuit was enough, but it was very enjoyable. Star Trek fans still speak to me in the street. Sometimes it's like I'm two different actors with two different careers, the Star Trek career and the other career, end quote. Speaking of the award itself, the actor said, quote, I feel very honored. It was a bit of a surprise, but a very welcome one, end quote. Good for him. He certainly deserves some recognition. He, he's definitely had a very versatile resume. And he also worked with Anson Mount, in Hell on Wheels. The official Star Trek website also published an interesting new video this week. The video is titled A Timeline Through the Star Trek Universe Part 1. Throughout the two-minute, five-second video, we're reminded of touchstone events in the Star Trek timeline. Beginning with the events of Voyager's Death Wish at 13.8 billion years ago, the chart carries right through the busy 23rd and 24th centuries up to the destruction of Romulus in 2387. Each iteration of Star Trek on the big or small screen is represented with special mention given to certain high-profile events like the founding of the Federation, the Enterprise's five-year mission, or the Dominion War. Perhaps most intriguingly, the video ends with the promise of to be continued. To see the video for yourself, check out the link in the show notes. All right, Anthony, you were chomping at the bits in Discord to talk about this timeline. Is it because it reminds you of Marvel's phases? I mean, kind of, yes. In terms of they took the time to do this. That's what's so important to me is that, you know, we reported a while ago about how there was this new, you know, global interactive franchise marketing team getting together. And I think we're starting to see what's come to fruition based on that. We're seeing more social media engagement. We're seeing more fun stuff like this. This is the kind of stuff that keeps people engaged and that keeps people sharing stuff on social media. Remember when they did the Picard Day activities? back in the spring. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we we need in the Star Trek franchise. It's so interesting to me that Star Trek created canon, like the canon of a television show. No other series had really had that before, before Star Trek did it. And now you see things like Marvel movies and TV shows all interacting together and everybody thinks it's so amazing and, and new, but Star Trek did that back in the 90s. And what's great is that we're finally coming full circle in that the marketing arm is catching up with what the content has already produced. And now they're taking advantage of that and bridging the fandom with the marketing and really pushing it. And that's what gets me excited about this is that they're taking the time to do these kinds of marketing things. And that shows me that they care and that things are not gonna slow down anytime soon. In fact, I think we're just getting started. I agree. They've done much better job over the last several months, especially during the lull between series to keep the audiences engaged. My only concern is when things start to premiere or things start actually happening that make it to the audiences because sometimes when that happens things start to go a little awry with the marketing arm of star trek so i am cautiously optimistic that as picard begins to roll out as these short treks continue to lead up to the premiere of picard 
that they will continue to improve and continue to engage and continue to offer content in between episodes. Um, I was just going to point out that Jason Smith brings up an excellent point is when Star Trek Online will be part of the timeline, which I hope that happens, but I don't know. That would be fair. You know what this timeline actually did for me? It solidified the fact that Star Trek is in fact a multiverse, much like DC is a multiverse. I tried real hard not to accept that. I really did. I'm just not a multiverse fan in the way that, for instance, DC is. The Flash Saga, Crisis on Infinite Earths, all these things that DC does, I've never really been attracted to. And also, DC and Warner Brothers have had a really hard time executing that on, uh, at least cinematically. But this timeline just really made me accept and swallow the pill that Star Trek is indeed a multiverse. I mean, we've only seen three universes, though. But when you start to include timey-wimey things, then it leaves it open for debate. Just two weeks ago, we were talking about best of both worlds, right? Did that really happen now? Is that going to be a part of Picard? Is that is he going to have Aramodic syndrome? Is he is he still worrying about that? All good things. Uh, all good things, I meant. So that's that's just about it, you know? Like, you know, what timeline are we on? Which universe are we in? Is it Earth 2 or Earth 137? You know, is it a Rick and Morty thing? We're in the timeline that airs on CBS All Access. That's, that is true. That is true. <laughs> but speaking of adding to the canonical timeline, Star Trek Kelvin 4 is gaining momentum. For real this time, guys. For real. In an exclusive report by Deadline, Noah Hawley has been announced as its writer and director. For those of you unfamiliar with his name, Hawley developed the X-Men Universe spin-off Legion and is the brains behind FX's Emmy-winning limited series Fargo. Now, not much else is known with respect to story or production timetables, but at least we know the production is, quotes, officially in the works. But... What about all this Tarantino talk that we just can't avoid? Well, according to Deadline's Mike Fleming Jr., the author of the article, quote, the studio separately is working on a Star Trek spinoff that Quentin Tarantino is eyeing to direct and has been working on with Abrams. This one will likely carry an R rating with a screenplay by the Revenant scribe Mark L. Smith, end quote. So, I'll be honest with you. This makes me really excited. I can't believe this is actually happening. I'll tell you what, I think the one of the reasons this is happening is that Noah Hawley was working on a Doctor Doom movie for Fox before the Disney purchase of Fox. And I know that that movie got scrapped, so that probably leaves a big hole in his schedule. And he's he probably came into Paramount and pitched them a great idea, and they said, you know what, that sounds great, let's do it. The budget's right. Let's let's get it done before the reunification of CBS and Paramount and Viacom. So I, I think this is great. And the other thing, too, that's in here is that they're now referring to the Quentin Tarantino movie as a spinoff. I'm wondering if that means that it's going to feature separate characters, not Spock and Kirk and the Enterprise crew. I was going to say that. What if it's like the Section 31 Movie, they could have uh, Michelle Yeoh do a movie, break it rated R because it's section 31. 
That'd be awesome! And Tarantino? Yeah, I would totally be behind that. Honestly, uh, there isn't much that Tarantino does that I don't like. I think that I, I'm cautious about him being involved in the Star Trek franchise because it's something totally different than what we're used to from his traditional films. But at least we've, you know, we're back on, we're back on track with a Star Trek four, which means that if it's being, from what it seems, it seems that it's still not written and production is still quite a ways away. But at least we have some direction now with respect to the fourth series involving well, what we can assume is involving the original cast of the Kelvin universe. I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if this started filming next year, like spring of next year. Well, they did turn around beyond quite quickly. From the moment that Simon Pegg was penned as writer, they, they turned that around pretty quickly. They wouldn't have made this announcement if Noah Hawley didn't pitch them an idea that he had already been working on. So to me, that means, and because he's writing and directing, that's going to streamline the process. So he can be he can be in pre-production while he's writing the script. And I do like the fact that this is a director, a producer, and a writer who has focused on television. Because right now, really, television is king, and the streaming market is king. So if he can apply that to a film, a, a major motion picture, that'd be great. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the first season of, uh, of Legion, the first part of Legion. That was a great show. Um, I didn't get into Fargo, but I did watch Bones, and he was actively a writer, uh, editor, and director there. So um, he's got a lot for television under his belt. He's also not afraid to take chances, and I think that's what Star Trek needs in a movie. It needs to take some chances. And this is the fourth Kelvin movie, so to be honest, I, I, I think this is the perfect opportunity to take those chances because if it's successful, great. If it's not, oh well, um, we'll never go back to that universe again. I agree. I love Legion, though. So good. Yeah, that was a good show. That leads us into our last community question and check it out this week. How do you feel about the announcement that Star Trek Kelvin 4 is gaining production traction? How do you feel about Noah Hawley's new role? Well, Captains, that's all the news we have for Trek It Out this week. Now let's find out what happened in the world of Star Trek gaming. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. Well, Captains, joining us for this episode during our gaming recap is our Astrometrics Specialist, Dr. Robert Hurt. Dr. Hurt, thank you so very much for joining us on this episode. Always a delight to jump in live when I can. Why don't you tell us what, what prompted you to join us on this week's episode? I have to say, driving home on Friday night, listening to Party One, you guys mentioned that the Sandbox VR Discovery Experience was available on the West Coast, including Los Angeles. And I had been waiting for that LA uh, experience to open up. So over the weekend, uh, I talked to my partner Patrice, and it's like, let's go to Woodland Hills tonight. <laughs> so we uh, drove over and we caught the Discovery Experience in, I think, the first week that it's been deployed at the Sandbox VR sites. To make a long story short, do it. It is awesome. It is a fantastic VR experience. Now, here's what I'm envisioning. You're listening to the show and you're on the 405 or the 101 or one of these infamous LA highways. The 10. The 10. And you listen to the show and you immediately make an illegal U-turn on the freeway to get to the VR experience. 
because you had heard it on priority one. So that's good. I, that's the that's what I'm mentally envisioning. I, I do not want to disrupt that image for you with a far more <laughs> banal, bland truth that really involved me forgetting to look it up when I got home for like two hours until I suddenly remembered, oh my God, I have to look up Sandbox VR now. I'm really fascinated by these VR experiences because it's not what some of us might remember from the 90s where you would stand in this platform and just be able to duck and shoot wearing quite heavy gear i remember in the in the 90s or even now when you go to something like dave and busters and you just put on the helmet this is a an immersive experience and we've seen immersive experience like this from another company called the void which did the ghostbusters in new york city they have a big complex in their home location uh, in the united states uh, and they've done several other adaptations walk us through the entire experience, kind of the moment you walk through the door. Sure, sure. And let me start by saying I've actually had the good fortune of doing like three different sort of immersive VR company experiences. And I've, I've done The Void a couple of times. I did the Ghostbusters back in New York a few years ago. Uh, I actually just did uh, The Void um, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, that was uh, sort of a horror type story. Uh, there's another one called uh, VR Escape Room in LA that I had done. Uh, slightly different setup. So the Void, they specialize in giving you uh, kind of real tactile experiences. They, you, you go through a series of rooms and you're actually in rooms that have walls, so there's that sense of presence that's there. But it's difficult to configure and you, know, you have a limited number of spaces you can go through because they want a one-to-one -one correspondence on rooms and doors and things like that. Right, so with the Void, if you see a wall in front of you, if you keep walking, you in the real world are going to smack into a wall. Exactly, yeah. And in, in most cases, that's the way it works out. And so it's very tactile. Now, with Sandbox VR, they do a different thing entirely where it's just an open floor area. And you can have anywhere from two to six people playing at the same time. You are using, like with a Void, you have a backpack that's carrying your uh, VR laptop so that you, know, you don't have to have any kind of tether. And so you can just wander around freely within that space that is demarked. So in the experience, the one thing that breaks immersion is you do have this red rectangular marker across the floor that sort of is your no man's zone. Don't go past this. You'll, you'll start running into the wall. And that's in the VR goggles, right? You see that in, in the world, the, the, the virtual world. Yes, you see that in the virtual world so that it's, you know, it's an obvious safety feature. And honestly, it was a, it was a good reality check just to, you know, keep from suddenly running and sprinting and smashing your face into a green screen or something. So I, I appreciated that. But it really, it, it didn't really affect the, uh, the VR experience uh, badly, I think, at all. The uh, character immersion was fantastic. It actually, uh, unlike the Void, it uses motion track devices on your hands and on your feet. So it does a much better job of representing your players that you're seeing in their virtual forms. And uh, you even get to start out with a virtual mirror seeing yourself and sort of seeing what you look like with your devices and your equipment before you start it, which I thought was a lovely, lovely touch. Um, uh, when I did The Void, you know, I kept wondering, what do I look like? <laughs> so it's nice to have that orientation at the beginning. Once they drop you in, um, I won't tell you every spoiler what happens in this, but, you know, you begin in a transporter room, which is so cool, and you have time to look around. You have two pieces of equipment in the experience. You have a phaser in one hand, and you have a tricorder scanner in the other hand. And so the whole time you're available, you know, you can be firing or you can be and or scanning at the same time. And all the way through the experience, they have lots of little 
lightly marked things in the environment, you can go up and scan. You get credit for, for scanning things. And you get some kind of fun little homage references to things. Or, in some cases, they actually are necessary for advancing the plot. I never felt rushed. I felt like I had a, a real good chance to explore each environment that I was put in. And I think that's really nice. The, the whole experience runs about 20, 25 minutes, beginning to end. And so you really actually really get into it for a while. You begin by uh, meeting Cadet Tilly, who, uh, just like in Stowe, becomes your uh, personal guide through the experience, uh, both in person and through your communicator. Uh, you begin by being down to a world, and it's so fun, like actually like experiencing that from the inside in the VR. And it's got to be the coolest load screen I think I've ever seen. <laughs> you just sort of sit there in, in transport space until the load screen finishes. And then uh, you get to go through several environments, like an ice cave, fighting monsters. Uh, the setting is um, somewhere in the middle of the first season story arc for Discovery. So the Klingon War is at full tilt. So uh, it gives a good excuse to um, take down some Klingons who are invading the ship. Uh, you do get to basically be on the Discovery for part of the mission. And uh, what I thought was really great about the experience is they are very clever in some places to get you to sort of experience what a space battle is like, but in the context of VR by replaying, say, a holographic representation of a space battle that you are then kind of reconstructing through using your scanning device. So it's like this cool thing where you get to a god's eye view of maybe some ships and what was going on in a conflict that you get to walk around and experience from all angles, but it's totally in game. It makes sense. You're reviewing a hologram. Uh, there are other opportunities to look out windows or you know, open um, uh, uh, shuttle bay doors to we'll follow some of the other conflicts going on, which makes it really exciting too. But for me, I think mo the most exciting things was the combat was <laughs> really visceral. Uh, and you know, you're, you're thrown into spaces, you have to find your own cover, you've got enemies coming at you from all sides. And more than once, I got to a point playing the game where I was just so overloaded. I was just thinking, will they ever stop coming? I just want this to end. I don't know if I'm going to survive. <laughs> well, let me ask you about the cover. So in The Void, you could, in fact, take cover in front of a physical wall outside of the VR rig, right? With this, you see a rock, and so you duck down, and it, you know, you're obviously not in front of a, a real structure, but the game essentially manipulates that for you? Yes. Yeah, you're given these non-physical cover structures that you can duck behind. But to be honest, once I started playing it, the lack of physicality didn't even really bother me because I was so in the scenario. I, I, I didn't want to stick my hand through the rock or the, the cargo or module or anything in front of me. I was about to ask you, what if, did you? Did you put your hand through the rock or the wall and, and what happened? I totally could have. I just... Like, I was so in the moment, it didn't even think to, like, like test the edges, honestly. I was having so much fun being in that space. You know, the way phaser and disruptor fire works is it takes, there's a little bit of travel time, so you do get the opportunity to dodge incoming fire. And, uh, and you get a lot of really good sort of duck, wait, pop out, snipe off a few shots, pull back and undercover. And it, it's a, a really visceral experience. It very much feels like the scenarios that we've seen in Discovery in the first uh, season in particular. It's great with two people, honestly, but we got so overwhelmed. I think if you get to play with a larger party, uh, that would really, really help. And what was interesting at the end, um, my partner Patrice is not the biggest gamer at all and, and normally doesn't I sort of have to drag him to things. And one of the first words out of his mouth was, so we're going to do this again? Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, awesome. That's fun. Because I... I, it has nice replayability, I think, because you do get a score at the end. 
you find out what your hit ratio was, the number of hits, the number of things you scanned. So there are things you can play with and do better. But moreover, the first time through, it's actually very disorienting because things are coming at you from all directions. And once you've played it at least once, I think it's you can very smartly start to think about strategies. You know, uh, there was more than once I felt like you know the two of us should have just been like back to back, each kind of strafing off in different directions, covering our blind spots. Uh, there are opportunities to try to you know fire on characters attacking your teammates. Right. But I've, as I discovered, um, you apparently get a lot of demerits for friendly fire hits. So <laughs> even though I had better stats than, than Patrice on a, a lot of the, uh, the, on the firing, the total number of targets hit, something about those five friendly fire hits I took on, hit on him still let him win. So, <laughs> so how many people did you actually play this with? Played this with two, and it supports okay, so up to just six. You and Patrice. Yeah. Uh, that you have to do at least two people. Did you have that option, or did you just come at a moment where nobody else is there? They always do it as you get to define your own party. As far as I can tell, they do not do pugs. It's not like, say, laser tag, where you show up, and then they just fill it up with whoever happens to be there at the time. And which made me happy because, you know, the you don't really want that random chance of getting somebody who's already played it, like, 12 times, and they're just, like all over your face and, and you don't really have that good interaction. I, I like the opportunity you, know, you show up with your own group you can do it with as few as two so it's relatively easy but if you have more then you can get you know a, a more full experience. I, I'm a little worried that maybe six people might be a little tight because you might st you have to be a lot more careful about bumping into each other because you do still have peripheral vision problems wearing the helmets. But the thing that they do add to the experience that I uh, that the Void doesn't have is that the vests you're wearing have um, tactile feedback uh, uh, buzzers all around you, and so there are. So if you start getting attacked from behind, you actually feel something hitting you from behind, and that gives you without seeing it, you know there's a tactile sensation. You need to turn around and face what's coming onto you. Is it area? Is it located by area? So if you get hit in the shoulder, you feel it in the shoulder area, or is it just kind of front and back? Yeah, the 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 sensors sort of uh, run vertically from your shoulders down to your waist, and there are a series of them across your front and back. Uh, there's one point where you're fighting these kind of ice worm creatures, and more than once I, they like leapt up and they wrapped around me, <laughs> and I could feel like being constricted, which was bizarre wow. <laughs> and the, the, i have to say that was the desperation <laughs> with which like die die and you're sh trying to shoot the face of this ice creature that's like looming right you know right wow. trying to eat your face off is really uh <laughs> really exciting i liked it <laughs> now where is this where is this located is it is it like in an arcade is it in a separate warehouse or this one's just in a shopping center it's a new build shopping center out in the periphery valley in woodland hills uh, it's uh, uh, Westfield runs like all the shopping centers in LA pretty much now. So it's one of the newer ones that opened up. Uh, it's pretty much the same with the Void. The Void is in like the Glendale Galleria and in the Santa Monica Third Street. So this one is uh, uh, Woodland Hills um, Promenade. So you know, lots of restaurants nearby and shopping. You can you know totally make an evening of it if you want. Is there a uh, is there a Jumja stand? No Jumja. That's that's the other franchise. This is deeply uh, discovery oriented. Uh, there might be one or two homages to maybe Next Generation, but I, I didn't see any uh, DS9 Bajoran references. Well, that's really exciting. And the entire thing was $50? Uh, a little under. I think the two of us, the tally came to something like 75 maybe. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, And the other thing I'd say that's really nice about it is that you actually, as part of that price, also get uh, uh, a trailer video of you playing the game. 
In fact, you get two. You get one where you have the little selfie video where you get to pose and they do a cute thing with your, your characters, and then a longer one that's sort of a trailer for the game, but it keeps intercutting to you wearing the VR rigs and then your characters doing their actions. That's awesome. Oh, wow. And you get those as free downloads at the end of the experience. So, you know, the experiences like The Void may be, uh, say, cheaper for an experience, but then they actually try to charge you more if you actually want the video or the, 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 the just the selfie shot, I think, for The Void was like an extra 10 or 15 bucks, so 20 if you're getting a printout. Oh, that's really, you have to upload them and share it with us so we can share it with everybody. Yeah, I, I totally will. I've uh, tossed it on my Facebook page already, but uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's really fun to get that. And the fun part, I think, is looking back and sort of seeing that back and forth between what you actually looked like on stage and then how that manifested as characters in the space. But it's very immersive. It's uh, it's really it just felt very uh, Star Trek Discovery through and through. Tilly was awesome. You know, having Mary Wiseman in yet another game was just a delight, and it's a, a good uh, a good lead all the way through. You get to see a lot of interesting locales. There's even some strategic beaming to move you over into areas that are better tactically for things that are coming on. So it's a it was a really nice way of keeping it very flowing. You felt like you got to use the transporter a lot. You got to scan a lot of things. And, um, and, and frankly, even before they put the phaser in your hand, with the way their body scanning works, you could actually like move your fingers and make a fist or point, and it's actually doing finger tracking. Uh, so it's a really good technology they have in the system. So I'm, I'm actually curious to go back and try some of the other uh, uh, experiences they have there too that maybe uh, you have more hand-oriented interactions. Speaking of that technology, did you ever feel motion sickness were the frame rates keeping up with everything happening there were a few times i felt the frame rates were a little low and so uh, a slight amount of lag not enough to cause any real discomfort but if you're super sensitive it might be an issue uh some of this might also be opening week uh, uh software glitches um i know at one point patrice lost his uh his hand scanner and they had to pause it for a second and kind of reboot, get that back into his hand so that he, I mean, he was holding the physical device, but he didn't have the representation of it in the game. Again, since this is the very first week it was released, I'm sure they'll be doing patches and updates over the coming weeks and months to hopefully get things performing a little more smoothly. But there is so much in these uh, settings that you're dumped in so much detail to look over. I, I was actually astonished uh, how rich the environments were they put you in, so. Well, Robert, thank you so very much for coming on this weekend and sharing your experience of the Star Trek Discovery VR uh, experience in Los Angeles. I'm really looking forward to it coming to New York in 2020 and uh, across other major cities in, in, in this next year. And I'll thank you. And, of course, if uh, any of you end up in uh, L.A. for a, an away team mission, let me know. We can, uh, we can pad out and make it a full experience. Well, Dr. Hurt, thank you so very much for joining us on this episode. As always, we look forward to our next Astrometrics report from you. And as always, you're welcome on the show. Awesome. All right. Well, have a great day. As the gap between story content grows larger, Cryptic continues to whet our appetites with a steady stream of fiction blogs. The latest, titled A Meeting of Minds, gives us a poignant moment between the recently resurrected Amna Patel and the Romulan turned Alachi Tarsev, overlooking the mycelial plain. As the conflict between Ja'ula's House Mokai forces and the rest of the galaxy approaches an inevitable, violent conflict, the two outsiders contemplate the best course of action and its inevitable consequences. 
You can continue the story by trekking out the link in our show notes. So this was a great little piece of fiction that I really enjoyed. Did you guys get to read this? I did not, uh, but I am going to right after this. And I'm starting to wonder, have we seen Tarsev in something? Like, I, is he a character in the Romulan? I meant to go back and play the Romulan tutorial again, but is he a character from there? Yes. Yes. My understanding is that he indeed was in Beneath the Skin. Is it Beneath the Skin? Mm. Oh, maybe you talk to him at the colony when you're on Viranet. Is what I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I, I would not be surprised if he is from the Romulan tutorial somewhere because it would just make sense. Um, but this story was really great. It was this nice little moment, and I really enjoyed getting to know these two characters a little bit more, and I hope that they show up in future story mission content. This weekend, a few of us in the Armada had a chance to try out the new Strike Wing escorts, and I must say... They are awesome. Since I prefer to fly escorts and I rarely fly ships that have hangar pets, I really like the combination of having a fast ship with some little extra friends around that help you out. Also, the console Universal Gravimetric Disruptions is an excellent addition to any control builds out there. It provides a slight boost to energy damage and control expertise, but also it affects multiple enemies. So if you like grouping up your enemies and making them explode, I highly recommend these ships. What uh, energy type are you running? I well on the Earhart I have uh, phaser cannons, and then on the Sec I'm running disruptor cannons. Are you finding that one or the other is more beneficial when using some of the control powers? Uh, no, I haven't. But I suspect once I work on them some more that they start to differentiate between the two, um, depending on which sets you put on them. Because you know, for a disruptor build, I would put you know the House of Martok set or the Nausicaan set, you know, I want to mess around with some of that before. But I just set it up, so I'm not quite done tweaking it. And you can actually run some of the pieces of the Martok set with the Nausicaan set as well, right? Oh, yeah, you can mix those. I'm sure there's an ideal. Now, I'm not a DPS chaser. I mean, I know there are some in our armada, but um, I'm sure there's a mathy way to work all that out. But you're having fun with them. And the control build, too. So you're probably looking at stuff like Gravity Well to start. Yes. Group them so up and you group to them do up. some damage. Yes. And it, it works right now. And I don't know if this was working as intended, but if you do a Gravity Well and get them all together and then press that console, they all just like disintegrate. It's fantastic. You know, last week I did a pug run of Defensive Starbase 1 and somebody had a control build that I could swear pulled in critters all across that entire map. I mean... It was insanity. Dropped a gravity well, what looked like a Titan's Rift, and all the enemies on the on the map, on the map, I could have sworn were getting sucked in because they were like zooming past from behind me, like zooming behind me into the gravity well. And I'm like, what the heck is, this is amazing. I'm just gonna sit here and shoot. So perhaps this kind of layout on the ship would be uh, would be ideal for someone like that. <laughs> for sure use that. But they do have some other consoles that do that crazy magnet, I don't know, graviton beam kind of thing. And you're, you were saying you were running cannons, which probably is has a better use with the firing arc than beams when you're grouping them all up in front of you. Yeah, exactly. And it's a 5-2, so it kind of lends itself to cannons because you could put like a 
torpedo if you use them or, um, you know, an omni beam or something on the back if you wanted to, or the cutting beam even. And by 5-2, you mean there's five weapons in the front and two in the, yes. in the aft? Yes. If you've been playing Star Trek Online for a long time, then you're lucky enough to have had the opportunity to acquire a plethora of limited time rewards. Back in the olden days of featured episode missions and big expansion story arcs, if you played the featured missions within a certain time frame, you were able to get some pretty cool items. Attending conventions, special events, or even donating to charities would deliver some in-game rewards that were available nowhere else. Well, thanks to Star Trek's mischievous merchant, Harcourt Fenton Mud, some of those highly sought-after exclusive items are making their way to a Zen market near you. On November 22nd, Mud's Market will open in the C-Store with a selection of previously exclusive or limited items. The opening round of items will include the Beacon of Kalos, the Crystalline Anti-Proton Energy Weapons, and the Bioengineered Combat Dyna with frickin' lasers. All of these items will come bundled with an ultimate tech upgrade. Also available will be the Vizier-class Command Assault Cruiser, the Ophidian Kane Shard of Possibilities, Riemann and Breen Bridge Op, Officers, the EMH Holographic Bridge Officer, Lita Holographic Bridge Officer, and the original series Holographic Bridge Officers. The items available in MUD's market will change at times, and there are sure to be some surprise discounts, so it's encouraged that you check the C-Store daily. So I have some mixed feelings about this. I do too. At first I was like, but I got those because I played back then. And then I realized I don't have the Beacon of Kalos, so I'm really glad this stuff is available now. Yeah, I had a very similar feeling about this. There is that nostalgic MMO experience in a game that if you miss out on an item, you miss out. Like, there, that's it. You missed that, and there's no way to get it back, and some of your friends have that leak gear, and you don't because you missed the event or you didn't get into the game. And that is a very what we're used to from the MMO era of the of the 2000s, right? And games prior to that. But then again, I didn't get my dino with the freaking laser beams and I really wanted that dino, so I'm probably going to buy that dino. <laughs> so it's it's uh I I am learning to let go of old habits which die hard, you know? Like letting go of the fact that Star Trek is not just one universe, but a multiverse and that Star Trek Online is not the MMOs of yesteryear, but in fact, a new type of MMO. And I'm okay with that. I think I'm okay with that. It's interesting. I think I think that this is okay. I think we're going to be okay, Elijah. I think we're going to be okay. I think we are too. I think we, we just have to get out of... get. We have to get up off of our porch chairs telling everybody else to get off our lawn. <laughs> yep, go get our colonoscopies and make everything okay. I think we're moving into an era where the game has been around for almost 10 years now. And it does not surprise me that something needed to happen to make some of these items available. The Shard of Possibilities, the Ophidian Cane, that makes sense to me. The things that are a little odd were like the Beacon of Kaelas, because that's such a recent reward. But then I thought to myself, well, this kind of makes sense in terms of the event buyout system, right? And so maybe that's their thinking. And I like the idea that 
these items are going to change. There's going to be surprise sales, so it's they're going to mix it up a little bit. I, 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 you know, I think I think it's cool. Um, it's it's obviously going to add more revenue to the game and and make the game you know continue. So I think overall it's a good thing, but there is a, a part of me as an MMO player who's, you know, who bought a lifetime subscription before the game launched that, uh, you know, m- makes me a little sad inside. Kat, is there anything that you have not earned that is in this? Oh, yeah, a bunch of stuff. Um, well, I have the Ophidian Cane on, like, a couple characters, but I think you had to do It's, you know, it was character-specific, so... Um, it didn't say if these are account unlocks, but I would hope something like that would be. And some of those bridge officers I didn't get during those missions either. So, um, yeah, there's some stuff that I will probably get out of there. You know, and since I don't normally play other MMOs or have not historically, I am not, you know, super upset that <laughs> I didn't play it the first time around. I just want my dino with the fucking oh my laser God. beams attached to its head. I love that dino. It's so fun. Well, Captains, that brings us to our next community question for this week. What do you think of these previously exclusive items being available in the C-Store for everyone now? What items do you hope are added? Once again, we're getting a sneak peek at the next event. A new tab has appeared in the event UI for the Winter Wonderland event, including an image and details for the new Tier 6 Fakiri Dreadnought Carrier, featuring a Lieutenant Commander Science slash Miracle Worker Bridge Officer Station and coming with a whopping five tactical console slots. This fearsome sail barge comes with Universal Console Open the Maw of Grethor. When activated, and we're not making this up, the ship projects a flaming skull in front of the ship dealing fire damage to all nearby foes and launching Lost Souls of Grethor. This carrier comes with two hangar slots from which you can launch more Lost Souls of Grethor, each one using Claw Swipes and Flame Breath to damage enemies. After achieving level 5 ship mastery, you will unlock Fiery Entrance. When activating narrow sensor bands or launching hangar pets, your ship will, of course, emit a burning ring of fire, dealing damage to nearby foes with a chance to confuse them. At the time of this recording, there has been no official blog post detailing the ship. However, as of right now, you can log into the game and view the stats and details under the Winter Event tab. And just to be clear, this is on Holodeck. This is on the main live server. This is... It's also on Tribble, but it is not just on Tribble. This is actually live in the game right now. So, Elijah, if I were to say to you, you could have on your stow ship electrical damage, or you could have fire damage with claw swipes and flame breath with a chance to confuse. What Pokemon are you going to send out to counter me? I choose you, Ghastly! That's all I could think of in this description. Maybe it's because I've been playing the new Pokemon game so much, but oh my gosh, I think this confirms 10th anniversary event is Pokemon in space. I'll be honest with you, I'm really excited about this. I actually bought the tier five Fakiri carrier way, way, way back in the day before tier six ships even existed. And to have a, an updated version with all of this just makes me so happy. Well, now it's time to move into some Armada news. Kat, why don't you tell us what's going on in the fleet? This week in Armada news, and as always, join us for TFO Tuesday, where every Tuesday we team up with other Armada members to earn marks in Dilithium. 
Also, if you're interested in joining the senior staff for the console fleets, that's both PS4 and Xbox, please reach out to us via PriorityOneArmada.com. And coming up this December, the, for the full month, we are giving away stuff every day. So all you have to do is be a Armada member and log into the game and you will ha- get a chance to win something that we are going to give you. Some cool prize. <laughs> it's a surprise, like, you know, the holidays. Also, in Armada news, the Gamma Fleet Tier 5 Colony upgrade will be complete in a couple of days, so thank you so much to Gamma Fleet, and well done. Thanks to all who contributed, because now you can get that Lucari Scout ship if you are in Gamma Fleet and have been wanting it. Finally, the KDF side needs fleet marks. There's all kinds of upgrades and projects that are slotted right now in a bunch of fleets on the KDF side that just need fleet marks to be complete. So if you have some extra ones uh, laying around and want to contribute, please do so. We will really appreciate it. In an effort to lend a hand to new players, or even surprise the most veteran captains in Star Trek Online, here's our weekly top tip. Running patrols seems to be a fast and fun way to level up your event progress. It can be even faster when you're running the blockade patrol. After you set up the beacon, you'll need to defend three groups of Krenim ships from the Vardwar and Voth. Well, as the contact says, if you only destroy the Vardwar, the Voth might leave. And that's exactly what happens. By focusing on taking out just the Vardwar ships, you can cut your targets for the mission almost in half. As soon as the last Vardwar ship is destroyed in each group, the Voth ships disappear. Just imagine how much time you'll save over the course of this featured event. And if you want to run these patrols on a higher difficulty level, this can make your runs that much smoother. In other gaming news... Star Trek Fleet Command is bringing the Mirror Universe into the Kelvin timeline. The Mirror Mirror event lasts from now until November 29th and features Terran Empire versions of Kirk, Spock, and Uhura that are obtainable by participating solo and alliance missions. Also included in this event is the opportunity to acquire blueprints to build your very own ISS Jellyfish ship. When playing through the Mirror Mirror missions, you'll also have the option to experience alternate endings. The choice is yours. Check out the show notes for more details on the event. I have to admit, the promotional material for this event is great. Zachary Quinto is a handsome man with a goatee. (laughs) And that ISS jellyfish looks fierce. I want that in Star Trek Online. I want to play that evil ISS jellyfish ship. Yeah, I agree. I, I was playing the game daily up until about a month ago. And this event looks very interesting. I'm probably going to have to pop in and check it out. Unfortunately, you do have to be level 39 if you want to pilot that ship. But anybody who is up there, you know, it looks like something really fun. Now let's slingshot around the sun and check out a retro Star Trek game. Earth Date, September 1993. Yay, 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 yay. Star Trek The Next Generation is heading into its seventh and final season. Star Trek Deep Space Nine premiered earlier in the year and now starts its second season. Star Trek's golden age was at its height on the small screen. Then there's the smallest screen, the Nintendo Game Boy. The OG black and yellow 160 pixel by 144 pixel 8-bit gaming brick of happiness. Star Trek TNG for both Game Boy and the NES also released during September of 1993, and boy oh boy, did this game have one little Trekkie beaming with joy. 
That's that's me, by the way. I was beaming with joy. Players take on the role of a Starfleet cadet being instructed by Jean-Luc Picard as they take command of the USS Enterprise-D and embark on a series of training missions. Everything from transporting an ambassador to rescuing a crew to engaging in combat with the Borg. As the acting captain, you give commands through interacting with each crew member by selecting their combat. To complete shipboard tasks like establishing a standard orbit or diverting power to the shields, you play various minigames. As you complete missions, you rank up and will unlock passwords that can be used to pick up your progress where you left off. I played this exclusively on the Game Boy, but I've heard that the NES version is a little easier to play. The graphics are not the best for the time, and the gameplay can feel a little clunky and not very intuitive. But at a time when the only other mobile Star Trek video games had you flying the Enterprise through an asteroid field, this was the first game that you felt like you were in the captain's chair. Well, you could of course download an emulator on your computer or phone. I actually have something called a Smart Boy from Hyperkin. It's basically the lower half of a Game Boy with the control buttons that you actually slide your USB-C phone into. You run an emulator on your phone, but you actually plug a real cartridge into the back and play the game from the physical Game Boy cartridge on your phone screen. I love this because it feels like a Game Boy in my hands but with a bright, colorful screen. But the best option, in my opinion, is to purchase a Game Boy Advance SP. These are the first clamshell-looking Nintendo handheld consoles and the first with a backlit LCD screen. It plays both Game Boy Advance games and the original Game Boy games. Although they stick out a little bit from the bottom, the console has a great feel and you're playing it as close to the original as you can without the need to stand under a lamp. A Game Boy SP will run around $40 and the game cartridge will probably cost around $10. You can visit any local used retro video game store for more information. Did you guys ever play Star Trek The Next Generation on Game Boy? No, I didn't experience my first Star Trek game until Elite Force, if that, and it was like after it had been off the shelves for years. Yeah, I never played any Star Trek games until Star Trek Online. Wow. Yeah, this game is great. I played this for hours and hours and hours in the backseat of my parents' car. It gets a little bit to get used to the controls, but it re- like it was the first game where you feel like you're giving orders to crew members. You have to tell Data to go into a standard orbit. Then you have to fly the ship through these squares. You know, you have to divert power. You have to tell Jordy to divert power to the shields, and you have to you have to change the track directions on these sparks that are coming down wires. It was it was really great. I can't recommend this enough. I wish this was like a mini game like app on a phone. I think it would do really well. That's it for this week in gaming news. Now let's look on screen for the latest short trek episode titled Ask Not. On screen. Computer. Set short treks episode Ask Not on screen. Make it yourself. In this next short trek titled Ask Not, on board Starbase 28, Cadet Thera Sidhu is thrown around her consoles in an apparent attack. Before long, a hooded and bound Starfleet officer is escorted into her lab by two other officers. This officer is charged with mutiny. When they pull back the veil, we're shocked to discover that it's Captain Christopher Pike. Can Cadet Sidhu follow her orders and keep Pike detained, or will Pike's reputation, authoritative charm, and the threat of losing her husband lure her to the side with the supposed mutineer? All right, Captains, before we jump into our review of the episode, why don't we talk about some touchstones and Easter eggs that uh, some 
sharp-eyed Trekkies might have caught with this short trek. Well, the USS Bowman is probably a nod to the same ship from the Vanguard novel Reap the Whirlwind by David Mack. Or it could also be a reference to director Rob Bowman, who directed 13 episodes of The Next Generation. What was the ship on... What was the ship that Lorca was on? The Baran. 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 And this also, the other ship that I confuse this one with is the Bozeman. Yeah, I was thinking the Bozeman. That's what I was thinking. But there's actually a Vanguard novel that has a TOS-era ship called the the Bowman, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's a nod to that ship. Also in this short trek, Pike quotes Regulation 191, Article 14. This is also the exact same regulation that Janeway quotes to Ramsey in the episode Equinox, Part 1. They sort of have a disagreement about something, and Ramsey questions who has you know, authoritative command between the two captains, and Janeway quotes uh, Regulation 191, Article 14, about the tactical superiority, which I thought was a great callback uh, to that episode. And as Tony said from last week's episode, this definitely feels like a Wesley Crusher Academy test, like we saw in the... Episode Coming of Age. Yes, thank you. Season one of Star Trek TNG. Tony's like psychic and stuff. Yeah, that was crazy. (laughs) All right, so why don't we jump into our reviews of this episode? Kat, why don't you go first? Well, I loved the short trek. I thought it was fantastic. But what I really loved was Cadet Sidhu. I mean, Pike's sitting there quoting regulations to her, and she's firing right back. I mean, she just, you know, stands up for herself and never gives in. I mean, you can see that she's doubting, but... In the end, you know, she sticks to her guns and she just really proves her worth. She's amazing. I loved it. And also, you know, you don't really get to see, other than, you know, the episodes we've talked about, you don't really get to see, you know, Starfleet in training or what kind of standards that Starfleet officers are held to. And I think that's fascinating as well. And finally, could Pike be more awesome? It's so good. (laughs) That's all I have. I love Pike. Anthony, how about you? So the thing that immediately stood out to me is there was this real classic Trek feel, right? I mean, this was the, you know, upholding the ideals of Starfleet in the face of adversity and and seeing that commitment through, right? The performances in this short Trek were amazing. This might be one of, if not the most well-performed of the short treks. I really thought the performances were fantastic. And you're right, Kat. Pike is... I mean, he's become my my third favorite captain. I don't know why we don't have a Pike show by now. I think they're just teasing us with these things, and we it needs to happen. I really loved the, the callbacks, too, that we mentioned, the touchstones. That scene with Janeway and Ramsey from Voyager is one of my favorite moments of that show, and I think a real Trek moment. And I think that to call that back with the exact same regulation was fantastic. And, and just the whole, you know... The Starfleet testing of the cadets, uh, just you know, the, there was even a little hint of the uh, the Valiant, you know, where the the kids went off on that starship, and then all the the senior officers died, and they had to run the ship themselves, and there was this this kind of just this that whole cadet feeling of like passing those tests I thought was was really well done and the end of of this short trek was really great too. So overall, I mean, when all is said and done, I. I thought it was okay. I actually 
you know, nothing new Star Trek wise. It just felt like the same old stuff, but it was well done. This was definitely one of my favorite short treks today. I mean, this episode delivered a story that hit on the notes that Star Trek has made in my life, in the way that I watch Trek. The struggle between personal and professional duty, questions of compassion, determinant resolve. It, it tested the human condition. Of course, it was strongly driven by remarkable performances by both Anson Mount and Star Trek freshman uh, Amrit Carr, who played Cadet uh, Sidhu. Carr was able to deliver a stellar performance with such little time. I mean, the moments between her questioning herself, her duty, her family, and then her shift into that steadfast resolve that I am a Starfleet officer, she executed all th that maneuvering so well. And that must not have been easy to perform with such little script material. I mean, in comparison to a full-length feature film or an episode, I mean, I equate it to, you know, a single scene reading, you know, in, in theater arts. it's It can be hard, really hard, to do a single scene in comparison to a larger production or a larger, more fleshed out script because you have so little to work with. As far as Anson Mount is concerned, I mean, just give him a show. Just stop. This man knows how to use his eyebrows. I mean, it's just amazing. There's this blink of an eye shift that happens where he goes from aggressive mutineer to compassionate captain trying to reassure a young cadet that her husband was safe. He just wonderfully conveys how guilty he feels over this necessary evil that is the psych test. The only thing I wonder with respect to this short trek is how it might have played out as a backstory to Cadet Tilly. Like, this is a backstory for Tilly that I think I would have really appreciated. How would she have dealt with this psych test? I mean, obviously the, the Discovery timeline with her and Pike wouldn't work out, but this might have been a missed opportunity to expand on the discovery lore of Captain Giorgio and Cadet Tilly. How did Tilly get on the Shenzo? But overall, this episode really tugged at what Star Trek means to me and how I've come to appreciate the franchise. It definitely worked for me. And if they if they aren't going to give us a Pike show, then damn it, stop toying with our emotions. <clears throat> no, she was never on the Shenzo. Uh -huh, I'm sorry, on Tilly the- Tilly uh, wasn't on the Shenzo. Uh, she was on Discovery, yeah, yeah. So maybe it would have been Lorca. Yeah. So Lorca would have been. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a really good point. Oh, I would have. I would have wanted to see that. Space. Astronomy, quantum mechanics. It's not theoretical. It's not hypothetical. It's real. Education. Astrometrics. The final frontier. For this week's Astrometrics Report, I want to talk about an exciting new science result involving the discovery of water in the atmosphere of an exoplanet that orbits in its star's habitable zone. Now as thrilling as that sounds, don't break out the sunscreen and beach tiles just yet. Even though it's been described as the best candidate for habitability outside of our own solar system, that may be over-promising at least in principle over the reality of what this world is really like. 
there's a lot of focus put on the location of planets within their star's habitable zone, both by the popular media and by astronomers. But what does this really mean? The habitable zone is simply defined as the region around a star where a planet would have about the right amount of light and heat to sustain liquid water on its surface if it were very much like the Earth. Now that last qualification is very important. If you moved Jupiter into the habitable zone that the Earth currently occupies, that would not make Jupiter a habitable planet. So the size and composition of a planet is just as important as where it's located if you're looking for a place that might actually be habitable in some human sense of the word. Now size is something we often can determine about an exoplanet, especially if it was discovered through the transit method by seeing how much light from its host star it blocked when it happened to pass in front. Now composition is a bit trickier. We essentially don't have any direct observations of anything close to an Earth-sized planet near its star. But in some instances, we're able to glean a little bit of information about a planet's atmosphere. That's just what astronomers did with the planet K218b, one discovered by Kepler in the final phase of its mission. When the planet passes in front of its host star, or transits, it blocks a little bit of the star's light, and that becomes the signature by which we detect the planet. But some of the star's light also passes through the thin layer of atmosphere on the outer edges of the planet. And in this case, the way that light was modulated by the material in the atmosphere created a spectral signature or fingerprint that let astronomers determine that there was water in that atmosphere. That makes K218b the first planet in a star's habitable zone to have water detected in its atmosphere. Very significant. But what is that planet actually like? With a measured size of about twice that of the Earth and about nine times its mass, K218b has been commonly referred to as a super-Earth, calling to mind a very pleasant terrestrial world that's just a little bit larger. Now part of the problem is what we mean by the term super-Earth. Another common term, mini-Neptune, sounds a lot less friendly than a super-Earth, but weirdly has almost the same definition. Both are defined to be larger than Earth up to about 10 times the size of Earth. So why have two different terms that sound very different, meaning exactly the same thing? The term super-Earth was really first coined over a decade ago, when there was a lot of excitement at discovering planets larger than our rocky terrestrial world, but smaller than the gas-covered Uranus and Neptune. In a fit of optimism, they were dubbed to be super-Earths. However, it was clear that there did have to be some kind of dividing line separating out rocky worlds that could potentially have surfaces and oceans from ones that will be shrouded in deep, thick atmospheres of gas, including hydrogen and helium. A wealth of data from the last decade now suggests that that dividing line probably comes closer to about one and a half times the size of Earth and that by the time you get to twice the size of Earth, you're really looking at a very small version of Neptune, rather than a very large version of the Earth. But because the term super-Earth is still around and still can technically cover that range, it tends to get overused a bit in the media, and it can lead to false impressions on what exactly has been found on planets like K218b. Now, in fairness, the researchers studying this world never suggested that it would have oceans and balmy beaches. 
Instead, they were focused on how there are certain layers in this atmosphere, due to its distance from the star, that would be compatible with the formation of water droplets like rain. But that is a far cry from what we would think of as a habitable planet. Now, could a Neptune-like world with a layer of water droplet clouds potentially give rise to life? It seems unlikely, but with what we know now, it's impossible to say. However, it's probably overpromising to really set this up as our best candidate for habitability. That said, none of this diminishes the significance of this result. The ability to detect signs of water in the atmosphere of a distant planet, even if it isn't a good match for the Earth, is an incredible achievement, and it uses a technique that will be developed and advanced in future generations of telescopes. Perhaps one day, similar techniques will let us detect actual biosignatures of materials in the atmosphere of planets that might directly suggest the presence of life, but that's still probably a long ways off. Until then, we'll take our victories on planets like K218b for what they are and look forward to the time that we'll be able to repeat this kind of study on worlds that really are much more like our Earth. That wraps it up for this week's Astrometrics Report. Let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, Captains, hailing frequencies are now open, and we're ready to receive all of your incoming messages. Last week we asked, would you pay $48 to experience the Star Trek Discovery Away mission for 26 minutes? Do you plan on going to the VR experience in the future? From PriorityOnePodcast.com, Sean Newboy writes, no, just not that much of a draw. From Facebook, Jamal Taylor, Discovery, no. Movie era, yes. TOS, yes. TNG era, yes. Enterprise, maybe with a group. From Facebook, Ed O'Connell, VR would be enough to grab my attention if it is totally immersive with props to handle when applicable. Then, yes, $50 for about half an hour is a decent price. A bit much, but I'd pay it depending on the era. Disco and Kelvinverse would be a harder sell for me than TOS slash TOS movie or the 24th century stories. Enterprise would depend greatly on the story. From Facebook, Dave Rutley writes, As VR doesn't work on me, I could not justify it, no matter the price. But to be clear, if VR could work on me, I would definitely pay that price for an away mission experience in any era. It is, after all, Star Trek. We also wanted to know, have you had the weekend to play with Star Trek Online's newest Strike Wing Escorts? Have you set up your ship? From Twitter, AD Games says, they make a good kinetic torpedo ship. From Twitter, Tazurin Savulin writes, I do like it, but I dislike the bug that it and all other ships with hangar bays have where if you recall the pets, they will despawn after getting a certain distance away, and should you send them back out, they are untargetable and will not move. Well, that wraps up episode 439 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. But there are more great shows available to you on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Just visit podcasts.roddenberry.com for a complete list. Then be sure to subscribe to them all and share them with your friends. But we can't forget to send a special thanks to some of our Patreon supporters like Diana Gunther, Darnell Dwayne Ross, David K. Rutley, Joshua Selig, and Peter Archibald. And before we go, here's our community questions for this week. 
First, if you could join the production crew of any Star Trek series, what would be your dream job? Next, how do you feel about the announcement that Star Trek Kelvin 4 is gaining production traction? How do you feel about Noah Hawley's new roles? Finally, what do you think of the previously exclusive items being available in the C-Store? What items do you hope are added? Captains, it's important to us that you get your voice heard and that you participate in our conversation. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or find us on Twitter and Instagram at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse! Catch our episodes every Friday. Just open your favorite podcast app. Do a search for Roddenberry. There you'll find us and our friends on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Then, when you're done listening to the show or as you're listening to the show, be sure to share it with your friends. Let them know that they can get their weekly roundup of news and a plethora of other content from the Roddenberry Podcast Network. And if you're still craving more, be sure to spend time with Winters and me and the Priority One Armada Saturday nights, the Armada broadcast live to review the latest Star Trek online and Armada news, as well as spotlight some of the amazing members in our community. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, to earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there's always something for all STO players, new and old. Follow us on all our social media accounts for broadcast times, and if you'd like to join the Armada, Visit PriorityOneArmada.com. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at Patreon.com forward slash Priority One. And even if you cannot make a financial contribution, then the next best thing you can do is spread the word about this show. If you enjoy it, then let everybody else know what you like about it, what you don't like about it. Just tweet, Facebook, Instagram us, let everyone know that you listen to Priority One Podcast. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at guardfrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons & Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. Thanks to our audio editors, including William Hardy, Brandon Parker, Rand Hurl, Daniel Stevens, Roscoe McQueen, and Skiffy. Thanks to our producer, Jake Morgan, and to associate producer, Shane Hoover. Thanks to our graphic artist, Henry Pomper, with support from Jason Smith of the Priority One Armada. Thanks to our composer, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Sue, no. Engage.
Transfer complete. Cat's not there. Oh, cat's not there. <laughs> <laughs> cat's like, oh, shit. It's funny because I looked up and she was gone. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, wow. She's she just left. I was like, oh, hey, I don't have to talk for like a long time now. And so I can go get some more wine. <laughs> That's why you got to bring the beer to the desk. Okay, see, I thought I was getting low and I should have gone. But yeah. Uh, sorry, poor planning. <laughs> what am I reading? Uh, the <laughs> bottom of intro where it says, uh, we're also looking for some help. Oh, okay. The new program will provide internship placements. Internship placements. I just got a little tingly feeling. The... <laughs> <laughs> just on the tip. His career as Starfleet engineer Miles O'Brien is second only to Michael Dorn's wharf for Star Trek as parent... Oh, the tingles. All the tingles. <laughs> All the tingles. Oh, this is going to get weird. And the original series holographic bridge officer cruise. And the original series holographic bridge Ricka, 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 Ricka. <laughs> DJ Anthony in the house. <laughs> Gotta fly them all. <laughs> fly the Grethor. There's our next song parody right there. Uh, it writes itself. I want to be Fakiri best like no one ever was. To burn them is my true test. To swipe them with my claws. Oh my <laughs> I will breathe a flame of breath to damage enemies. The soul of Greta is by my side. I can't think of the rest of the rhyme. I froze up. <laughs> I climbed up. Gotta catch up. Oh my god. Classic. <laughs> oh man. That hurt my stomach. <laughs> <sighs> Where's Kurland? Gotta catch up. <laughs> And Lawrence arrived just in time. The bio and the bioengineered and the bioengineered Viriadon. And the bioengineered Viriadon. I'm so tingly. <laughs> oh, the beer's kicking in. And the bioengineered And the bioengineered for, for <laughs> I don't know if I can do it. I don't think I can do it. And the bioengineered combat dino with frickin' lasers. Now we're gonna get an angry email from Hour of Era. From that time it's first I I compared Star Trek Online to Flappy Bird one time and got a very strongly worded email. Now we're going to get a strongly worded email because we compared it to Pokemon. Whatever. But the song was uh, amazing. Panda, Panda says, Curlin here, use diplomacy. It was very effective. It wasn't very effective. Oh, it wasn't very effective. Oh, oh my God. Well, now let's... Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.
itself. I want to be Fakiri best like no one ever was. <laughs> to burn them is my true test. To swipe them with my claws. I will breathe a flame of breath to damage enemies. The soul of Greta is by my side. Can't think of the rest of the ride. <laughs> I froze up. 